This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and um, I have my head under a jacket uh, in the back seat of a car with Charlotte Bear. Hi there. So um, we're obviously not driving. <laughs> Thank God. But uh, Peter, your boyfriend, is driving. Very skillfully, I must say, even though it's pretty bumpy. And we don't know where we're going. No clue. Yeah. He um, picked out a place to drop us off in the middle of D.C. or Virginia or Maryland. We actually don't know. And uh, he's driving us there. And I should explain that this edition of B-Side is about lost and found. And so um, we are in the process of getting lost. Hopefully we find our way out. Peter, what, what criteria went into choosing this location? Because of Washington, D.C.'s uh, wonderful metro system, it is difficult to get lost. So I tried to keep it at a minimum of a mile away from any metro stop. You luckily picked Sunday evening, so your bus routes are cut in half. So with any luck, you won't be home till after midnight. Oh, that sounds like a lot of luck. Yeah, my boyfriend loves me, clearly. <laughs> so the other thing about this is, um, you know, it's so easy not to get lost these days because oh well there are maps those have been around forever but also phones with maps so just to show that this is for real and we're not going to cheat mm-hmm. i am now i'm in my iphone going into the settings turning off the internet Ooh, that's so a move. so no maps for us no it's just you and me girl So, ooh, we're slowing down. Is this it? You've arrived at your destination. I'm not even going to tell you what state you're in. Do you have any advice for us? Not particularly. Find your way home. Find your way home. I left you in a cul-de-sac, so you know the first direction to go. Oh, that is helpful. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, you'll, you'll have to make a decision for 125 yards. It'll be dark in about an hour. And uh, if you go the right direction, you'll be just fine. Well, um, thank you, I think. You're quite welcome. Enjoy. Love you, honey. Love you, too. Have fun. Water. So he's gone. Yes, yes. Maybe we should follow him. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm going to guess that we're in the state of Virginia based on the, the license plates. Looks good, yeah. He said that it was within a mile of a metro stop, yeah, right? Yeah, okay. What direction do you think we came from? Um, I think we came from north. I don't, which way is north? Well, I don't know. The sun's over there, so it's setting in the west. Right, okay. So northeast, southwest. That way is north, I guess. All right, well then let, let's go, I guess, this way? I'll follow you. (laughs) Okay, so now we're on Edison Street. You know, yeah. I think I think one of the things that I never do is pay attention to the little landmarks, though, like the fact that that was Third Street, and then we'll see what the next one is, and then we can figure out at least where we've been. Because I could totally wander around in a neighborhood like this forever, and it all looks the same. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're all just these brick houses. So you were talking about landmarks. In certain parts of Appalachia, the streams are the landmarks. 
you know, like what stream you live near is what neighborhood you're in. But a lot of those streams have been disappearing hundreds of miles of them. And is that because of climate change or where'd they go? Well, they're under piles of coal mining waste. And uh, Kristen Espelund is going to tell us more about it. Some things you just know you're going to lose, you know, like a contact lens or a glove. Mostly it's little things you can easily replace. But how do you lose a stream, as in a little river? Ricky Hanshu can tell you. He's showing me around his home here in southeastern Kentucky. Uh, This is the home place. Uh, My father lives in the house that my grandfather lived in. It's beautiful country around here, really hilly, lots of trees. It's very rural, but it's a different place from what Ricky's father might remember. Mountaintop removal coal mining has totally changed the landscape. To get at the coal seams near the top of a mountain, mining companies just blast away at the rock. And it's cheaper to just shove all the debris into the next valley rather than haul it away. So the valley disappears and so does the stream that ran through it. It's what happened behind Pastor Dovin Ratliff's house. Ricky drives us over to his neighborhood to show me where the valley used to be, where a stream that fed the neighborhood creek used to be. And now you see that it's all been filled in from debris on both sides, and the valley will never be back there. Neither will the stream. It certainly won't be the same again. Now there's just this yellowish, brownish trickle. Dovin comes out to meet us in his backyard. We're in uh, Plumber Fork of Hueysville. I'm a pastor of Martin First Baptist Church. Dovin's lived here all his life. At Plumber Fork, by the way, is the name of the stream and of the neighborhood. He says that before so many hundreds of miles of stream were buried, they were hopping with fish. We've had dry spells before, and still we had water in the streams. We had uh, minnows, fish of all kinds in the streams. Now there's nothing. Dovin says a lot of his parishioners work for mining companies. They need the jobs, and it's some of the best-paying work in town. They all know that they're destroying the land, which God gave us to live on, to watch over. And one of these days, when we stand before him, he's going to look at the ones that was in power, and he's going to say, what did you do with what I put in your hands that you could take care of? And they ain't going to have no answer. Coal companies say they're not doing anything wrong. And unless they're violating a regulation or operating without some permit, it's all legal. But Ricky Hanshu says those laws need changing. He has had some victories, but it isn't easy here. This is coal country, after all. Uh, they just say that I'm fighting a losing battle. Uh, we, we're not winning the war, but we're winning a battle every now and then. Just a little bit of improvement every time we do something is, is an improvement. For Ricky and Dovin, losing streams isn't just about losing the fish or even the clean water. It's, it's about identity. They identify themselves by the streams that run behind their homes, the ones they used to play in. If the stream goes, a little part of them goes too. That story came to us from Kristen Espeland in Louisville.
how did he think we were gonna get out of here? <laughs> well, every day these people pull out of their driveways in their cars or they walk and they go to a metro station. He said we're within a mile of a metro station, right? True. So I guess we just have to think like, how would these people get to civilization? Ooh, look at those cars zooming by. I saw some cars, they actually look like they were going kind of fast. So it might be a busy street over there. Looks like it, maybe, maybe. We shall soon see. This is B-Side, I'm Tamara Keith, I'm here with Charlotte Bear, and uh, we are standing on a street corner now, and it looks like we found a pretty major street. We're not standing on a street corner in that way, though. No, we're, we're lost. We, we are on Carlin Springs Road, and we feel like this is a pretty major road, and we're trying to figure out which direction to go on that road. Okay, I see a pedestrian and a bicyclist and a man with a dog all going that direction. So I think maybe we should go that direction. Let's follow the herd. We're walking. And we're walking. And we have no idea, actually, if we're walking in the right direction. Nope, none at all. So this experience that we're having where we feel lost and sort of confused about where we are and, and we don't know if this situation is going to get better or get worse, I think that's sort of what Judah LeBlanc felt when he discovered that he had lost part of his hearing. At the end of a mild but dreary winter, I lost most of the hearing in my left ear. I discovered it when I answered the phone, and I had to shift the receiver from my left ear to my right. My left felt plugged up like I'd been on a plane. Months went by while I waited for things to return to normal. Finally, I went to a specialist, and I was given a hearing test. Sitting in a soundproof glass booth, I raised my hand in response to a series of beeping tones. There were long periods of silence. The irony of this wasn't lost on me. I'd earned my undergraduate degree in deaf education. I taught deaf children for eight years, and then I worked as a sign language interpreter. Growing up, I'd always felt a deep connection with my Uncle Jerry, who'd been deaf from birth. Now I know it was because we were both different, Jerry visibly, while I felt like an outsider on the inside. Growing up gay, I carried secrets, though, unlike my uncle, I could pass for normal. I looked up to Jerry, who was full of old stories about being the only deaf kid on his high school basketball team. But at home, his father, my grandfather Papa Ben, would lecture him. How many times have I told you that? Later, I figured out that Jerry did miss much of what Papa said. My grandfather wore a mustache, which made lip-reading difficult. When I was a senior in high school, I visited a school for the deaf. I was amazed by the secret language of sign and decided to teach deaf children. I'd never seen Jerry's sign. His oral method teachers had taught him sign wasn't a real language, but a series of animal-like gestures. He used his voice, but his speech was harsh and dissonant. Meanwhile, Jerry worked as a draftman's assistant, limited by the education he'd received from teachers who taught him to speak, but little else. I'm not sure if I told Jerry of my plans to teach, but a few months later he died of a heart attack at 44. So that day in the specialist's office, I glanced at my audiogram and knew something was seriously wrong. The first doctor barely seemed to care. Dr. Blasé said I probably had an inner ear virus. A second doctor said that one of the tiny bones in my middle ear had probably stopped vibrating. Surgery might fix the problem or it might not. 
I chose the least invasive option, a hearing aid. I was fundamentally different than I'd been a year before. I made frequent visits to the audiologist, a honey-voiced southern blonde, who fit me with one hearing aid, then another, then a third. The first two aids were almost invisible, but in crowded spaces they'd wail, which frustrated and embarrassed me. At 50, I gave in and got a behind-the-ear aid with a visible coil, a reminder of the aging process. The aid takes getting used to. I remove it in the rain, wind, or at the gym. As the audiologist informed me, not a day will go by when you don't think about your hearing for the rest of your life. She was right. I worry about batteries, earwax, and losing the aid. And I think of my uncle, the price he paid for being deaf, and the echoes between my life and his, which continue today, 35 years after his death. Judah LeBlanc is a writer who lives in the Boston area. This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and I am... I don't know where I am. I, I think... I think that I am in the state of Virginia. I'm here with Sharla Bear, and we are on an Equally adventure. Lost. Equally lost. <laughs> Trying to get unlost. That would be nice. So, we are walking up a hill towards some big buildings, because we figure big buildings have to be a sign of something, right? Uh, we can hope. <laughs> we also saw some retail. Maybe. Which is a good sign. We're just looking for signs, I think, at this point. Like a sign that says, Metro, this way. That would be a really good sign. And by way of a reminder, we have turned off our cell phones. We have no map. We're actually lost on purpose, but uh, we don't want to stay that way much longer. Yeah, and we, we know that we are... Well, at least when we got dropped off, we were within a mile of a metro stop. And my boyfriend Peter said that if we walked the right direction, (laughs) then we would get to a metro before dark. But we don't know if we have done that. And it's getting darker. So what's the next piece, Tamara? Well, it's a piece, another piece about things getting lost. It comes from Andrew Walsh, and he's going to introduce us to a guy who lost a piece of himself. A big piece. It's no exaggeration to say that the amount of good music out there is extremely vast. My daily existence involves listening to music, reading about music. I'm very serious about music. That's Dave Siegel. He's sitting in his living room surrounded by records. They're spilling out of boxes, covering part of his couch, tables, shelves. He says he's got about 3,000 records and CDs. Maybe more. We'll start with the vinyl. My Miles Davis vinyl, my Don Cherry vinyl, Alice Coltrane, Samande. They're pretty hard to find. Dave's a music editor for The Stranger, one of Seattle's weekly newspapers. So music is his business, but it's also his life. I started collecting records in 1980. I was about 18. I didn't get an early start, but once I started, I really got obsessive about it. And he's still obsessed, especially with his vinyl. Dave's in his late 40s. He's not married, and he's moved around the country a lot. 
His records may be the most important thing in his life. That's what makes his story so painful. When Dave took his new job at The Stranger, he had to move from L.A. up to Seattle. And packing up all those records is never easy. It's stressful because you want to keep them in order. So when you unpack them, you can unpack in alphabetical order. It's a very painstaking process. He hired a moving company, and when the guys showed up, Dave kept a pretty close eye on his stuff. The owner of the company said his things would show up in Seattle in about two weeks. But when the truck got there, there was a problem. There's something seriously wrong. Boxes were missing. Big chunks of Dave's collection were just gone. Poof. Disappeared. My anger was just growing by the minute. I was just thinking, my music collection is, where the hell is it, you know? My worst nightmare is happening right now. When Dave retells this story, he sounds ridiculously laid back. But at the time, he was freaking out. I, I was like, I, I actually hurt my throat yelling. like, And I was like, you have that, this adrenaline shooting through you, like, kind of trembling and just... The profanity coming out of me was pretty startling. He called the owner of the moving company, but the guy didn't have any answers for him, just vague promises that his stuff was okay. When Dave called again the next day, he just got more of the same. Same with the day after that, and the day after that. It was me just making phone calls almost on a daily basis until I got frustrated, and the very thought of calling was nauseating to me. Finally, the owner of the company called Dave, but it wasn't good. He said the guy driving Dave's stuff disappeared somewhere over the Canadian border. No one knew where he was. Dave hung up, and that was that. Some people after this kind of loss might take stock of their priorities. I think if I were Dave, I wouldn't be able to buy another record for a long, long time. I would like to say that I had some kind of revelation and I totally changed my ways, but... Since I lost my stuff, I've been trying to replenish it at a pretty rapid rate. I've gone a little crazy, like, trying to replace some key titles. Dave lost about 7,500 records, around $40,000 worth of music. But it's not about the money. I can live without my dresser, which they also lost, and I can live without a coffee table. Those are pretty replaceable, but... A record collection is not just about material goods. Big, important parts of me were lost. Dave could spend the rest of his life trying to track down all of his old records, but he'd never find them all. Someday he'll reach for some obscure record, and it just won't be there. Kind of like a phantom limb. But even if Dave says he didn't learn anything from all of this, I disagree. I have a feeling the next time he moves, he'll rent a U-Haul and do it himself. Song sung blue, everybody knows one. Song sung blue, every garden grows one. Me and you are subject to the blues now and then. When you take the blues and make a song You sing them out again You 
sing them out again. Andrew Walsh is a radio producer living in Seattle. This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and I'm here with Charla Bear. Lost, lost, lost. Perhaps one of the worst things that could get lost if you were, say, 10 years old or 12 or 13 would be a journal. Did you ever keep a journal or a diary, Charla? You know, I didn't because I was too paranoid that when you write down those things that no one else is supposed to read, someone is going to end up reading it. Yeah, and that's pretty much exactly what happened to Anna Sachs. I asked her to tell me about her journal. I was writing about um, the typical stuff that you would write about when you're 11, 12, 13. You're writing about boys and um, fights you get in with your friends and who's your best friend one day and then the next day they're not your best friend anymore and um, about a lot of kinds of rites of passage like getting your bra for, you know, the first time you get a bra or you shave your legs or something like that. And it has this, um, it says Dear Diary, and it has a bear on the front and a lock. Yeah, it has a, so it has a little bear on the front sitting in a chair, and um, I named the diary Snuggles. I guess I decided the bear needed a name. (laughs) So rather than write Dear Diary every night, I was always writing, Hi, Snuggles, how are you? So I was talking to the bear. Can you read your first entry? Okay, sure. Um, Saturday, July 8th, 1989. Dear Snuggle, that's who you are. You're the little bear on the cover of the diary. I'll be writing to you every day. Tonight I'm going to Norma's to sleep over. I'm excited about this. I will also babysit Max and Lindsay. You'll hear a lot about them later. Snuggle, please listen when I write. See you later tonight. Ta-ta. So at some point, you stopped writing in this diary, and at some point, this diary left your possession. But you didn't know it was lost? I just forgot about it. What made you think of it again? I was at work one day. I got an email from a girl who um, was a college student in, in New York. And she said that um, she had something she thought belonged to me and that I should brace myself. Um, she and her younger sister had had my diary for years, maybe five, six years, and um, then she decided to return to try to find me and return it to me. Were you at all afraid of what she had been reading about you? Um, a little bit because, yeah, a little bit because because some of what I detail in the journal towards the end of the journal when I'm starting high school is a lot of um, you know first experiences. Uh, the first time I drink alcohol. I think I wrote about that in there. My first serious boyfriend in high school. So there are certainly some personal things in there um, that when you, you know, when I was writing it, I didn't ever think that someone else would be reading it, let alone someone that I didn't even know. So let's call her. Okay. All right. So we'll try to, we'll try to call her and, and um, see what she has to say. Hello. Hi, is this Julia? Yes, it is. Hi, Julia. This is Anna Sachs. I'm good. How are you? Great. Oh, good. Um, I, I just wondered if you could re, kind of recount for me how this, like, what what the situation was, like how you ended up with it, when you found it. Oh, sure. Um, so when I was uh, 12 or 13 uh, years old, I really don't remember when this was. Uh, my father gave me this uh, diary, and uh, he said that he, uh, I think he got it from work. 
He's a repairman in a, a building in uh, Manhattan, and uh, what he used to do was that he, you know, used to salvage books from the trash, stuff that people would leave behind when they uh, moved out. And uh, I started reading it, and I actually really liked reading it. I mean, uh, I was in middle school at the time, and I thought I could really relate to it. <laughs> oh, you you mentioned your sister also? Yeah, yeah, she used to really like the diary, too. Um, is there anything, like, in particular that you remember from the diary? Um, well, I guess when uh, you talked about boys and, you know, hanging out with friends, stuff like that. Yeah, I talked about boys a lot. I think yeah, and wanting to become famous one day. <laughs> Well, that didn't actually happen. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> what is there anything you learned from it? Uh, you know, uh, this was okay. This was a sound kind of uh, funny, but uh, I thought to myself, if I ever throw out something personal like that, I will make sure that it's destroyed. I don't want it to end up, you know, with two twelve-year-old girls in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Do you, did you think it was embarrassing? Uh, yeah, yeah. What did you think of that conversation? Um, you know, it's interesting to know that um, that she to imagine she and her sister as young girls growing up and ha and having that. It's funny to think that they were using my diary as something to kind of help them get through it or just to relate to. Like I was surprised that she. It was funny to hear her say that she could relate to the person writing the diary so much. So in in a way, maybe having lost this diary, it and getting it back, it's nice to know that maybe I helped make it a little bit easier for someone to go through that. It's almost like your diary was more valuable to her than it was to you. Yeah, I think that I think that's that's definitely true. Because I mean, I had didn't even realize it was missing. I mean, I think typically people who lose things are the people who are so distraught that they lost them, right? And in this instance, I didn't even realize I had lost it and it was more of a treasure to her, I guess. I could hear in her voice there was a little bit of, um, a little bit of nostalgia for it, which is funny because usually the person who writes the diary has the nostalgia for the diary, not someone else, you know. Anna Sachs lives in Washington D.C. with her husband and her daughter. Charlotte, can you imagine what that would have been like? I would have been mortified, just as mortified as if we were walking around in somewhere completely unfamiliar to us. Like we are right now. Well, yeah. <laughs> but hopefully that'll change soon. If you want to know if we ever make it out of here alive, then you're just going to have to tune in to the next edition of B-Side, because that's all for this edition. We had stories from Kristen Espelond, Judah LeBlanc, Andrew Walsh, and Anna Sachs. The show was produced by Renee Gattel, Abigail Beshkin, Peter Christensen, he's the one who got us lost, and Charlotte Bear, who's here with me, lost right now, we think somewhere in Virginia. Getting eaten by mosquitoes. Somebody help us! <laughs> so if you want to learn more about B-Side or to hear these stories again, please visit 
bsideradio.org. Charlotte's been taking pictures all along the way, and those will be up on the website too. I'm Tamara Keith. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>